Welcome to the Making a Runner podcast. I'm your host, Nick, a running specialist, biokineticist, and coach. And I'm your co-host, Davey, aka Davey on the Run. Through our shared knowledge and experience, we unpack the fascinating topic of running. We speak to coaches, athletes, subject matter experts, and everyday enthusiasts to help you improve your running. And ensure that you enjoy every step of the way, wherever the road or trail may take you. This is how runners are made. It's how runners are made, baby. Oh yeah. When we exceed the capacity of our little running machine with load that's excessive, we then limit the body's ability to undergo what should be just a normal happy stress or eustress for that tissue adaptation. Our bodies are so cleverly designed that tissue adaptation happens with even our easy training runs. That's just a continued stimulus for our bodies to adapt. And the current thinking is that we should probably be spending at least 80%, 75 to 80% of our time in our green zone. And that is quite hard to do because isn't it so that if I train harder, I'll perform better? So we forget that our bodies go into what we call the stress response when we train in that yellow red zone. And we pat ourselves on the back when we've done a particularly hard run. And perhaps we even tell ourselves that's good because I've learned how to run in those you know, tough conditions. Now I must be ready for that race. Um, instead, our bodies took much longer to recover from that one single training run where we insisted on running too hard, too fast, too intense. And we forget that all those positives that we should have had from just easy tissue, tissue stress, tissue adaptation, we now put our bodies into chronic stress. And now we've got a whole lot of cortisol and now we're going to have to deal with that. Nicola! Davide! My man, I, I see your wife is... Um is getting really good at that, at that, uh, yeah. at, that intro. I- imitating. Eh? I'm you. gonna, I'm gonna have to <laughs> trademark it or something. Yeah. But, but I'm not gonna lie. It's been so nice actually listening to um, making her runner, um, and, and hearing you know the the different takes on on that intro and the banter you guys have got going. And I just have to give you both a kudos, guys. If you haven't listened to oh, thank you, making her runner. I definitely, I can highly recommend it. <laughs> um, I'm glad Nick is doing it because they're talking about a lot of stuff that. Um, that um, uh, makes you <laughs> makes you very comfortable. Makes me very comfortable. Yes, <laughs> but um, but Nicola, um, on a on a separate note, how are you feeling, my friend? I believe you are <laughs> sick. I'm sitting three no, meters no. away from you. Not sick anymore. Um, mm-hmm. I was pretty. I didn't feel very good this weekend. Um, I was. It was quite bumming not to be Thank able you. to get my running in as much as I wanted to. I think but you just missed me. You just Probably. missed your running partner. Yeah, my running partner went and ran the whole week last week without oh. me, and I was just, <laughs> my body just gave up. I was like, why are you doing this to yourself? So but yeah, I'm better. But you were sick, and you took some time off running? Yeah, I could have taken more time. To be honest, uh, I went and ran 30Ks on Saturday. I, w- I was feeling fine, so my heart rate was low. I was always said to myself I'd, I would stop if, if I wasn't feeling good. But then, you know, as Saturday went on, in the evening, I really started to take a turn for it and then on Sunday I didn't feel good at all so I listened to my body took a rest took a rest today as well and now I'm feeling pretty good to go again tomorrow so yeah it was and I mean I mean that's super relevant to our conversation yeah, today sure. with uh, Julie Rawdon um, Julie specializes in injury prevention and she's a give me her <laughs> for a proper, for a proper title, please. Julie um, is a physiotherapist, a physiotherapist by trade, but she's also a human movement. She studied human movement, uh, so she's 
she knows a lot about a lot of things and injury is her game. Uh, when it comes to injury prevention, injury management, recovery from any kind of injury, really, she is the go-to for me. And we have a very good working relationship. So when wanting to chat about this uh, particular topic, there was no one else that really came to mind for me. And I mean, today's discussion was really, really quite insightful. I think it's an extremely important one for runners in general um you know we speak a lot about running injuries how to manage your running injuries when to listen to your body and what to do about it how to become a more intuitive runner uh we bring up certain examples of different injuries such as rtb your shin splints typical muscle strains, Achilles tendinopathies, and how to deal with those things. And all in terms of how to be able to maintain your target goal. And, you know, it comes down to, as we speak a lot about it, is achieving the right goal and making sure that you are in it for yourself. It's your own personal journey. You shouldn't be looking elsewhere. And we really hope that you you find today's discussion quite insightful. Uh, Before we go on to the discussion, I want to mention something. So you are on your way to Budapest. Yes, Nicholas. Tell us about it, because I've been watching on TV wishing that yes. I could be at the World Champs and you are going to be there. Yes, currently, while you guys are listening to this, I will be in the air <laughs> flying to Dubai and then a connecting flight to Budapest to to be part of the IAAF uh, Championships. I really am excited. I'm going down um, as part of the ASICS Frontrunner International Team Meeting. Um, we start on Thursday and I'm going to be doing a, a pentathlon. We're going to be watching some of the events. I get to watch our our beloved Yvette van Zale in the 42 kilometer. Um, their route comes past our hotel. So it's going to be amazing. I'm going to try and maybe get a few interviews with some with some athletes there to to bring back to you guys. But yeah, it's going to be an amazing time. Don't, 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 you don't have to be shy to the, to the fans. Yes. You can tell them that, you know, they're making a run of jetters flying you too. Oh, yes, sorry. I, well, you know, I, I just, I don't like bragging. But yes, guys, we upgraded. It's actually now not the making run of jet. It's the making run of A380. We've actually bought out Emirates. I'm flying first class. Okay, okay. Overkill, <laughs> overkill. But guys, before we start the show, we'd like to give a shout out to Run Wild Apparel. They are a local running brand inspired by the trails of KZN. They believe life starts outdoors and their goal is to provide premium quality clothing for South African runners to enjoy life outside with their family and friends. Run Wild Apparel are proud to partner with local manufacturers and test all their products themselves. So, from a quick promenade jog to a long day out in the mountains, their clothing will keep you feeling and looking great. To view their winter drop, visit www.runwildza.co.za or Follow their Instagram page at runwildapparelza. Run wild, together we go far. But now, without any further ado, here is Julie Rawdon. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hey guys, we've got some thrilling news for you. Get pumped because the Hollywood Bets Durban 10km race is happening on the 3rd of September. Right here in the heart of KZN. It's going to be epic. So picture yourself running alongside top-notch athletes, aiming for that personal best on a super fast route that's just perfect for crushing your 10-kilometer record. That's right. And to make it even better, you'll receive a high-quality t-shirt with your entry 
A stylish souvenir to remember this fantastic occasion. Seriously, it's going to be a blast. So whip out your calendars and make sure the 3rd of September is locked and loaded for the Hollywood Bets Durban 10km race. Trust me, Nick, you won't be disappointed. Entertainment and fun will be scattered along the route to keep the energy high. And we're going to paint that city purple together with Hollywood Athletics Club. And you've got to be there. Time's ticking, guys. Don't wait around. Head on over to racepass.com right now and secure a spot for this fantastic race. All right, let's make it happen. See you all there. Let's run together. Jules, thank you so much for being with us again on the show. We Good to be here. We, we are very excited to have you on and chatting to you about some running injuries, something a little bit more specific than our last conversation. I think our last conversation was actually at the beginning of this year, and it was uh, about how, how to get started on your running journey and doing so safely, whereas today we're going to chat a little bit more about how you can stay on target with your running journey, doing so safely as well. And uh, this conversation sort of began where Jules and I had a, had a bit of a conversation over the phone, uh, as we do often with uh, patients that we, we we chat about and uh, we obviously I feel there's a there's a big need for this type of conversation a lot of runners out there don't fully understand what running injuries actually are and how to go about managing these running injuries and knowing that if they manage those injuries correctly it doesn't have to necessarily derail their training all in all so I think today we're just going to have a, an overall conversation about running injuries how to manage them how to catch them early enough what to do about them when you do catch them and how to be able to stay on track with your training so that you can still achieve your goals and we'll have Davey our, our, our day-to-day howdy <laughs> howdy you, you're going to make sure you keep this conversation grounded right you've you yeah, got a very I, important yeah, I, thing I, I have today. got two PhD <laughs> masters in science sitting sitting beside me and I, I'm here to, to dumb it down yeah, yeah, yeah. and so make sure that the that the listener actually understands. So you gotta have a safe word. If if that safe word comes out, we, we know we're doing the we safe word can be ten tendinopathy. <laughs> what do, how do I even pronounce that word there? Tendinopathy, Tendino- tendinopathy. That's a good start. <laughs> okay. Julie? Debbie, I came here to hear what you wanted to say. Yeah. <laughs> I have lots to say when it comes to injuries, but but that is why we have you here. So let let's get right in, Jules. Where, where would you where would you want to begin with this type of conversation? Maybe defining what injuries are. I think that's a, a bit of a an interesting one. Knowing that you know runners injury is part of your running journey. It, it it is going to happen if you have run consistently for even a couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of years. There's no doubt that you have suffered with injury before or had to manage your injuries before. There's stats I mean I mean 50%, 75% of mm. people are bound to get injured in a year. What is an injury? So, I think if we can separate in our minds um and maybe this is a fundamental difference to just um appreciate um Pain is not the same as a running injury. And when we speak about repetitive strain injuries, which are the injuries which afflict most of our entry-level runners or even our our experts, I think it's important to understand that they're not the same. So pain is part of this tissue adaptation going on all the time when we are exposing our bodies to a training load. And a running injury, a specific niggle, is then a very different discussion. So I think if we can get our heads around being relatively comfortable and tuned in to the the pain cues we're getting, we know we can distinguish 
an injury sign or symptom um, and know what is needing attention and needing us to to change capacity differently. Mm. Um, on that note, I think an important principle for any new runner or existing runner to appreciate is a load capacity. So we all have a, a different capacity based on what we've done with our, our body. And that will be affected by the sleep we've had, the nutrition we're good about uh, sticking to, um, and the, the, the type of training we're doing. So when we exceed the capacity of our little running machine with load that's excessive, we then limit the body's ability to undergo what should be just a normal happy stress or eustress for that tissue adaptation. Our bodies are so cleverly designed that tissue adaptation happens with even our easy training runs. That's just a continued stimulus for our bodies to adapt. Our nervous system adapts, our heart adapts, and our chassis. Um, Tim Noakes used to say it takes 18 months to be road hard. And it takes a lot quicker for our cardiovascular system to make us aerobically ready. Or we prep for a race and we get aerobically fit long before we become road hard. And we have a bit of callus, which gives us a margin against that kind of repetitive strain injury. But a degree of repetition and training is needed. So you expose the system to load and you build capacity. And... The fine line between um, healthy load versus excessive load is where our injury mm. zone sits. And, and it's a fine line, right? It's a, it's a very difficult line. That's where novice runners can get themselves quite a, a, in a pickle situation just simply because of what you mentioned. And I think, you know, Davey can relate to this is you feel like you can do more. Like, because as you say, aerobically, your fitness goes up pretty quickly, but Physically, your body just lags behind and that's where you have to have someone that's outside just telling you, you know, holding you back a little bit and saying, perhaps you need to take a little bit of a deload, you know, but the general runner just wants to keep on progressing, wants to see improvements in their times, wants to see improvements in their, their heart rate response. You know, you're always looking for improvement, but that is a short term improvement with potential for injury rather than a long term conservative approach. So I think if we can encourage the runners to have conversations in their heads, and these need to be honest conversations, because I think we we get caught up in a group, we get caught up in a program, and perhaps there's that um, denial factor where we don't really want to hear the cues our bodies are giving us. And we've understood now pain is not a damaging event, it's a clever signal that's designed to alert us to something and then we need to action. Do we need to rest and treat or do we just need to tweak? Um, there was an interesting uh, YouTube video I watched and the runner said the first line of questioning you want to be having in that little conversation with yourself is what's happening around me? This pain, this thing I'm feeling on this run, um, I wonder why it's there. So have I had a week where stress or workload has been mounting up? Um, how has my diet been this week? What else is happening around my run that could then sensitize that system? Because every cue is not necessarily an emergency. So once you've dispatched that and you know that this is something more real that needs your attention, then you, you change your, your approach to now addressing what could be an injury state. And I think being able to, to, to adjust, whether it's being flexible in your training plan or being flexible around what, what do I need to do here, your, your main aim here is how do I increase capacity? And that sometimes it's not just unload, 
but what do I need to do to bring my capacity back up? So there's two ways to tweak this. So we either want to reduce load, to slow down, as you say, deload, or um, a more proactive way is to say, well, how can I increase capacity? And that's part of our tr- our treatment of whether it's a repetitive strain injury or whether it's a um, just an overtrained syndrome where we start to become injury prone. I think later it's what, perhaps useful to touch on that, that overtrained syndrome, mm. which affects all of us at a point in time. Maybe our strategy should be prevention of that OTS versus trying to treat it once it's well established because it's a it's a, a sequence of events which is hard once it's cascading to slow down. Yeah, it's very difficult to manage at that stage. But also to mention like what you what you're saying in terms of repetitive strain. In that sense, runners are quite fortunate in the way that those injuries do develop because they develop slowly over time. And if you are in tune enough with your body quickly and you do something about it right away you can oftentimes avoid these issues where you know if you're playing sports like tennis rugby soccer that you know you kick a ball and your quad goes like that happens regardless of how prepared or non-prepared you are so i mean how do you go about knowing what your body feels like davy like what are sort of some signs that you felt in the past uh that you perhaps know that you're tinkering a little bit on that overload line that julie's talking about yeah so for me i think i've been pretty fortunate um in the past year i'd say where i haven't really experienced any any injuries and i, and I say that you know touch wood when i first started my running journey i, I had quite a few injuries but um I, I think you know as as each runner progresses and your body gets you know used to used to the strain on the road and used to your your program and, and the and the, the output that you you know putting out there it does become accustomed to certain things but for me you know i think there are lots of cues that i like to follow my calves are uh, haven't always been you know a, a very tender point for me so i mean I, and i try and you know monitor it on a on a output um on an output ratio so i know when i'm you know feeling a bit um a bit fatigued in, in my calves or if something's feeling very tight going down my itb band and when things do get very bad then i'll try my best to you know do a deload um i find it best to you know as much as you don't want to stop running as a as a runner you know runners get fomo we we all want to keep with the program and i think we're all very competitive what, what i am i sit on strava <laughs> watching my friends r- um, run past me but you know getting on the bike the watt bike um or, you know just to keep that cardiovascular fitness up is something that i use quite um quite frequently when i'm really experiencing experiencing something but yeah over over time i think it's it's been something that i've learned to manage um and just feeling those different cues and just knowing when to you know reach out to your to your coach and, and just you know pump the brakes yeah i mean pumping the brakes is a key element that most people don't want to do right jules i mean i'm sure that you've had people coming through your doors suffering from all sorts of injuries and that the after they they tell you what they're suffering from. The next thing that comes out their mouth is, please don't tell me to stop can running. I, can I still run? <laughs> so, Davy, you said two things there which are interesting. So you framed the one alert button or the, mm. or the one cue as fatigued calves. Mm-hmm. The other one you said, are they tight? Mm-hmm. So as an experienced runner, um, those two signals might panic a newbie. But in mm. your situation, you've identified that's a tired calf. Yeah, for sure. Or that's yeah. a tight calf. Yeah. So then the, the intervention must match match the symptom. 
So there are times when it's not just tired and it's not just tight because those are just indicators to, to, to tweak. Um, injuries which we call are the old and cold, you know, they can light up. And those are ones that we usually get on top of quite quickly. Mm. Um, the newer ones, which seem to be better established, and now it's two or three runs in, and the same pain is still there. Those require a different approach. And when Nick said, well, Jules, what should we do for repetitive strain injuries? I thought the easiest way to, to think of treating an injury, and in fact, it's not two-prong, it's perhaps three-prong. I think you have to start with the, the, the runner's head, because that's where the injury yeah. is foremost and and it's it's a loud shout and and they're desperate to to tame it there okay so if you you want to reassure them that this doesn't mean the end of their their running block it doesn't mean that they're out of the race so you calm the farm first (laughs) perspective is is everything Um, and funny enough when you've when you've unpacked that injury and you've described that they've just basically exceeded their tissue's ability to adapt to that particular run load or that particular week's run uh schedule volume, yeah. volume um, and and you explain that that tissues are designed to adapt in fact when we when we do train we get muscle breakdown but these clever bodies of ours are, are designed to then repair and very often we are just that much more susceptible to the repetitive strain when we haven't done a deliberate effort to do proper multifaceted recovery so it isn't a fallacy to implement things like cool down or static stretching or foam rolling. In fact, we put a lot of attention on our on our program. Have we got a mix of, of tempo runs and hills and long and slow? We're less fussy about how we program our recovery. Do we have a range of motion exercise that we do where we try and, again, get the most out of that adaptive phase of the exercise we've just done? So I think if we if we look at how we're resting, that's probably the first step to trying to get them to see that they're going to be very active in their own recovery. So in healing this now tissue damage, they've got a lot of work to do. They don't then feel as if they've completely come off the track. But it's also about being proactive. What you're saying there is being proactive. I mean, we see it all the time. People come in, they want that secret formula. They want you to Silver tell them bullet. what to do. I want a pill that you can fix me with everything now. And you give them exercises, you give them things to do. They'll do it until they are pain-free. They'll do it three times a day if they have to. But the moment they start to feel a little bit better, all of a sudden they think, I, I'm through with this. Let me go back to my whole behavior. So isn't that just human nature? Human nature is to to rush the goalie and we want to try and uh, condense that time. So so the bottom line is tissue healing is, if we look at it from a physiology point of view, if it is, strictly speaking, a tendon injury, and a lot of our RSIs are tendinopathic in nature, you're not getting away with much less than a, <laughs> a two to three month cycle of, of tissue healing before you have the integrity back in that tissue for that tissue to sustain the same load that you were putting on it. And that's long. In any runner's logbook, that's a long time. But you you quickly, at the very um, onset of them having sought treatment, you say to them, right, now this is your work to do in getting better. So they've got to keep their aerobic base. You put them immediately into a swim or biking or whatever that aerobic thing is that's going to keep them getting their endorphin, feeling like they are active. Um, and then I think the... The next step is understanding what the tissues need. So we need to, and that might be the role of the chiro, the massage therapist, the the physio. We want them to do something proactive to try and get 
healing expedited in that tissue. Um, and they have a role to play there. That's also not a passive process. You're going to ask them to stretch differently. You're going to ask them to, to foam roll. Um, and there is a place for pharmacology, but we see the one thing missing from a lot of the, the, the return to run, having been injured, is that they haven't waited to, to implement the stretch and the strength and that's required for that injury phase. So we use a lot of eccentric load to rehabilitate a tendon that's been grumpy. And um, so eccentric for, for our listeners is that lengthening of the tissue. So usually you've got scar tissue and some adhesions forming in your injury zone. So to adapt that tissue to load again, it needs stretch. So you would practice some form of range of motion. And then you want to try and expose that tissue to stretch under safe load. But your key there is an eccentric training of that muscle because that's going to make you road hard again. So if you look at what goes into active recovery or actively being part of your healing process, it's not just a head game. It's not just your physio's responsibility. There's quite a bit of work to be done in that rehab process. But it's, I, I totally agree. And I think eccentric loading is one of the key elements and components that all runners should include in their training programs. It, it's a massive element of being able to run well and also being able to to take that load from the ground into your joints and also be able to to pro, uh, to promote a powerful extension of those muscles when you are running uh, as well. But in terms of managing that training load in, in a training program, as well as uh, overall uh, sort of looking towards a goal and, and building up towards that goal. Um, now, you have a runner that, say, is training for a marathon. They, they've got a 12-week, 16-week block towards that marathon. Within that training block, they, they need to also understand that, yes, it's 16 weeks towards the marathon, but not all things always go according to plan. So you need to allow for plans not to go according to plans within that and that's why you want to start your training early enough so that you're not rushing in i mean now say if you eight weeks out of a marathon and you're trying to build up towards that marathon and something goes off then yes you might be at risk of of not getting to the marathon but if you've been proactive and have started early enough like we say 16 weeks um you can have a couple of weeks here and there where you can expect your body to sort of fight back a little bit and you just need to be able to hold on and, and, and push back. Now, when you are guarding these runners and say someone comes in and they've got issues, the first thing that you say is obviously, you know, you can still achieve your goal. You're trying to mentally be very strong for them and put them in a, in a positive frame of mind. But thereafter, when, at what point of that rehab process do you as the therapist start to perhaps look towards saying, okay, maybe it is not the safest thing for you to do. Maybe it is worth looking towards another event. What would you, I know it's very generalized because we're not talking about a specific case and no runner wants to hear you're not going to get to your goal. Um, but if that is the case, what are sort of signs and symptoms that would be red flags for you as a therapist saying, no, you, it, we absolutely can't do this? So I think persistent pain or pain that extends beyond an injury time frame uh, is for us a red flag. Uh, given that we're all urgent to be back on the road, that's a given. 
hopefully at the, at the onset of that patient seeking treatment, you've already unpacked what the short-term, medium-term and long-term goals are. So steering them more towards a long-term goal where they might have to deviate from what they had in their mind for the, the upcoming one, um, you, you need to unpack that they are going to put at risk more of what they want to do down the line, or say what you what you forego in September or October, you might want to, you know, you still want to be running in December. So, so what you lose on the straights, you make up in the roundabouts. That discussion uh, is important to have at the beginning. But pain doesn't always follow a normal healing, uh, you know, sequence. So we look for that initial inflammatory phase, and you can quickly see an athlete who is. Uh, not moving into that next fibroblastic phase where they're starting to tolerate your passive stretching a little bit easier. So you're just seeing that they're not, they're not robust in, in your increasing what you want to uh, do with those tissues. They're still, their, their probe tenderness is still very high and they're just not tolerant of, of um, load or your manual techniques. So we want to stay... Uh, we want to keep it simple, but I think the thing to avoid is to rushing into uh, very expensive imaging strategies. You know, I think runners then, when you communicate that the healing is perhaps not on track, they want to over overdo the investigation. So spending lots of money on imaging should really come about when you've exhausted all the reasons for slow for slow healing. And often it's not so much that the injury is not going to get better. You have to say, well, are you doing all the other things which we've said you should be doing? Um, so when something becomes perhaps bony rather than just soft tissue, the need to look in and then be, be more realistic is, is, is a sign. And um, you get those patients who just don't line up with all your normal parameters. We get people who have, whether it's uh, they are more hypermobile, they tend to, to, to respond a bit slower because they, 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 they don't retain their neutral zone as easily. So I think your, your relationship with your patient where you know that their reliable score of pain, you know, how sore is your leg today on a scale of 1 to 10? If you see that that score is not shifting and functionality is not shifting, then you know you, you're stuck. And then your course of treatment needs to now change. Okay, that wasn't working. What's our next hypothesis? And there's very few injuries that don't. Some are more stubborn. Um, and then you you have to be a little bit more patient. But there's very few, if it's a strict repetitive strain injury, provided you've stopped them doing that very repetitive movement which has brought the injury on in the first place. I mean, that does almost go without saying. But mm. athletes are um, pretty adamant to, to stay and keep on doing what they're doing. So have you rested if, if we took ergonomic injuries? Have you changed your work setup so that you don't get a wrist RSI. <laughs> the same for a runner. Have you changed what you were doing? Because for as long as that stimulus for that tissue to have to be loaded repeatedly, unless that stimulus changes, we're not going to see a change. So you, you have to be certain that you've radically rested them sufficiently. Um, I think they also go back prematurely and then the, the margin is, is somewhat smaller. And then the old, the old injuries light up again. But what I also do find is in, in that particular case, there's there's sometimes, you know, not every injury uh, that we see is the case of, okay, well, you have to completely deload, take off running. There are injuries where you can manage with, with your running load, whether you're decreasing the volume or you're decreasing the type of running that you're doing. I think 
It's also dependent on when you are experiencing uh, the injury. Some of the injuries that runners experience, they don't even feel when they're running. They actually feel great when they're running. They, they're experiencing other elements of their lives. Uh, so in those particular cases, it might not necessarily be the running that's actually causing that. And it's everything else, like what you mentioned, mentioning ergonomic made me think about it. You know, there's a lot of cases where someone that works a, a desk bound job eight hours a day, um, they experience issues say when they're sitting at a desk when they're running they actually feel good so you 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 shouldn't necessarily say okay well you need to stop running to sort this problem out you need to look at what else in your life is actually going on uh, to figure out the the root cause or where the issue is coming from but i want to point this to davy because i remember there was some photos of when davy started his running journey uh especially i think it was your the first two oceans that you tried to run uh-huh. you, you had tape from yeah. like upper neck to <laughs> calf man and uh, did the tape did the tape fix you no, I, that was actually, so that was what I referenced to what I would refer to as the beginning of my running journey. <clears throat> that was the first time that I, w- that I did um, two oceans, 56K. And I was very much, you know, a social runner. I still am a social runner, but starting out my journey, um, I was doing maybe 30, 40Ks a week, you know, running with a, a completely different group than I am now. And I hadn't really, you know, discovered how much I loved running but I actually um, got really bad ITB like properly bad and it was a situation where it was like three weeks away from two oceans and I actually went ended up getting a cortisone injection in my in my knee and I hate needles so this was like you know it was the pain was not going away And everybody had, you know, given me their advice. And I was like, okay, what's the one thing I haven't tried? Cortisone. Even though I had got so much advice, you know, don't do it. You're too young. It's not going to help. And I was like, I don't care. I'm running two oceans. And then did it, you know, put the tape on. And I think it's just also, once again, one of those scenarios where you, you, on race day, your adrenaline's so high and you you run through it and you're going to be okay but the long-term effects of that for me definitely came back and, and bit me and i don't think you you always you know piece it together because they're normally quite far apart from each other but um but yeah i mean no the did tape, the cortisone help it did it, honestly it didn't um because i had the cortisone and and then i still went you know, for some training runs and like I could, I could get to like five, six Ks and it was still hurting, you know, and cortisone is meant to essentially numb the pain sort of or or mask that, no, not numb the pain, but mask that injury. And that's why it's so bad from my understanding is because you're just masking the injury and not fixing anything. So no, the tape did not at all help me. I think once again, you know, you, know, you go to those psychological if, if your brain thinks it's helping, maybe it's going to do something for you in that specific moment. Davey, I just want to say you're one of the speediest social runners I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think two, two things stand out when Davey responds. He speaks about uh, the, the tape perhaps not working, um, but you believed in it for a time. We rely heavily on that placebo effect. In fact, it's used in clinical trials now as an intentional intervention. So your control study or your control group are actually designed to illustrate what percentage placebo does work. So I think the tape perhaps did help you. I also just want to add it in there. I think runners love tape. Of course they do. Because I think like when you rock up to a marathon, you like want people to know that you've been through it. 
you know and you got it like you're almost proud of your injury you're like i've got a tape because i trained hard but it validates the injury right we all yeah, for need sure yeah or so maybe you have a bad run and then you're like oh but the tape you know <laughs> but we all need something which makes it legitimate so our tape validates and and by the way that placebo effect shouldn't be minimized it, it has it has huge value but do you see how you did a whole uh, debate in your head and it, <laughs> you know the law of diminishing returns we we weigh up risk reward a lot of the time we we say something we will risk doing something because the in our heads we've evaluated that reward would be better than for sure so so that is that is how individual it is and so for the entry-level runner or the experienced runner now that you know what really bad itb feels like davy mm. The next time you got that same ITB, do you think it would have the same threat value? Um, threat value, or would I handle it? Handle the situation. How differently? would you handle it differently if you would? I w- listen. Like, don't hold me to it. Okay, <laughs> I know enough now to to. Like, I I wanted to say earlier. I think I've learned the most powerful mechanism for me in terms of um, injury prevention and then injury maintenance is rest. I think I've learned that from comrades. Um, I had really chronic fatigue last year. Um, and even this year, like, it's just like it really opened your eyes, you know, seeing you put your body through something and seeing the only thing that's going to get you better is by actually resting. And I, I think, it, you know, it's true for a lot of things, especially injuries. So I, I think I would like to say if I did encounter ITB again, the first thing I would do is, is rest depending on your goal i think that's also you know some people are so fixated on their goal you can tell them you know everything to do like here's what you got to do to have long-term success but people are still going to go out and and run that race um so i think it is about you know overall experience i think i'm in like my fourth year running now and i know i know i would know what to do it's just about getting that individual to actually execute on it do you want to run a sub three marathon, you know, and then have three months off after that because you're going to furtherly damage or the injury is going to be worse? Or do you want to skip that race and, you know, run a, run a sub three marathon four months later and still be able to continue? I think runners also aren't long term. We're very, we're very short term. That's why when we said we have to make sure we've unpacked their medium term goal or their long term goal, because then you can talk about the now mm. and it's relative to what's what's coming. Uh, so something which you spoke of there, Davy, and rest we underestimate. Uh, we're such cleverly wired, and and our nervous systems are so adapted to to work and do. You know, we are human doings. We're not human beings. So it's counterintuitive in our busy world of technology and pace you know aren't clever people always busy so rest has to actually be I think understood as probably the 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 best thing you could do and if you saw every training particularly if you're training in your sort of more intermediate zone rather than your green easy zone if we could put more emphasis on just how important the value of rest is in terms of tissue repair tissue recovery not only is sleep fundamentally important for that you know, training individual, we would then prioritize rest and in fact embrace it rather than deviate or, or, or neglect to rest because we just can't bear the idea of missing out. You know, FOMO is real. For sure. But if we could, if we could almost 
call rest the most important thing you could do as a deposit in your, if we could find a column in our training diaries and we could tick the rest column or tick the sleep column and see that as much of a worthy achievement in that week's program as we did the mileage we're counting or the time on feet, I think we need to give it priority because it is the, the, the key thing to preparing you so that you've restored, so that you cope with that next week or that next morning's training run. There was interesting stats on the zones we tend to train in. And if you think back, Nick, to, and, and it would be someone like Tim Noakes, who's good at busting myths. In fact, he's <laughs> unapologetic <laughs> when he <laughs> blows some of our old sort of run theories out of the water. We used to subscribe to that no pain, no gain theory. And it's probably the most clumsy uh, you know, slogan out there. Um, unfortunately it fashions a lot of new runners because they believe that they've got to go into that red zone so you're comfortable talking to your friends your social green zone is where you're not short of breath um, can be compared with your sort of intermediate yellow zone where it's a bit more effort induced and then your red zone is where you, you you're just bursting and mm. you, you really can't even get a word out we should be spending very little time in our red zone and the current thinking is that we should probably be spending at least 80%, 75 to 80% of our time in our green zone. And that is quite hard to do because isn't it so that if I train harder, I'll perform better? So we forget that our bodies go into what we call the stress response when we train in that yellow-red zone. And we pat ourselves on the back when we've done a particularly hard run. And perhaps we even tell ourselves that's good because I've learned how to run in those you know, tough conditions. Now I must be ready for that race. Um, instead, our bodies took much longer to recover from that one single training run where we insisted on running too hard, too fast, too intense. And we forget that all those positives that we should have had from just easy tissue, tissue stress, tissue adaptation, we now put our bodies into chronic stress. And now we've got a whole lot of cortisol and now we're going to have to deal with that. And that takes us perhaps 48 hours to recover instead of that normal ticking over. And we, we don't always obey the 10% rule of increasing a training intensity. So I think it's around um, framing those words like rest or um, things like perhaps I'll, I'll stretch or I'll do something different. We have to embrace those alternatives as being as worthy as getting that a Strava track <laughs> or track session. But it's also, I find it's, it's interesting because I think it is dependent on the experience of the individual as well. So I do believe that it comes down to setting achievable goals. The amount of times that I'll get queries even from, from people that, you know, they've watched Comrades now, they want to run Comrades. And yeah, sure, it sounds like a great idea and I'm all on board. But are you setting an achievable goal based on your experience, based on your training history, based on the time and availability that you have in your life? I think these types of things, especially non-experienced runners, don't actually have an idea of what it takes. And by the time they realize what it takes, they, they're too deep. They maybe signed up for that race. They're 10 weeks into their training. Now they have to commit because they've told everyone in their circle that they're going to do it. But isn't that the, the thing that we see most commonly is these novice runners and I mean that comes back to Davy's story that was in your first couple of years as a runner I mean someone that's doing 30ks a week should never even be thinking of doing 56ks as as the training run or as the the race goal race that they're doing and yet they're willing to take uh, they're willing to quarter zone they're willing to tape just to 
get the tick and say they've done it, you know? And in hindsight, yes, it's experience and we've learned, but this is what, I mean, this is why we're around this table today is to try and and create a little bit more awareness and, and make individuals a little bit more understanding of the different levels. And I completely subscribe to doing a lot of easy training with a bit of quality work, but I also think that it's dependent on the, the quality of that individual and the experience of that individual. Because now if you take someone that's that's a hardened road runner, someone that, that does a a lot of running they've been running for four or five years they got into a very good groove and now they're doing a lot of training that's the type of candidate that's now more likely to be able to transgress into say a more threshold type of uh, training routine or more of a high intensity uh, type training routine obviously still with a fundamental of easy running at the base of it but that's where it really differs and also with the availability of workouts and social media and that type of stuff you're looking at someone that has been running for 10 years Years and saying this is my marathon prep and you in your first year you're like okay well that lo- that looks like it's achievable I'm going to go and do that exactly that I'm going to follow it plan by plan and that's where these guys really do get caught up they don't understand that as you mentioned that's how you started the conversation it takes time it's it's sort of years to harden up your body to running it's, it's a hard sport and that's why that experienced runner who's now 10 years on the road, first of all, they have a capacity which they've over years and years increased. Um, there's nothing like that very stressed out uh, amateur who's now regressed to that mean sort of block where every run is just hard. And they're staying in that, they don't know what a green run feels like because they never feel green in their run. That when we start to see those diminishing returns, you know then that you're exceeding it. But there's a very big struggle because we, we train in groups and no single individual, just like no single injury or patient presents the same, we very much are pack animals and we want to move with the safety of our pack. Um, and so it takes courage to deviate and, and be flexible, mentally agile with your plan and go, for me it's not good to stay here. I need to you know, change my flight plan. And, and address what I need to do for me, otherwise I am going to lose the pack, you know, going forward. Um, it's very difficult when, you, when you're doing that on your own, uh, but we, we make these blank statements, or we, we, we subscribe to uh, a program we found in one of our publications, and we think that that's a copy-paste, one-size-fits-all. Um, I encourage any runner to be really picky about what works for them, because what's working for half the pack can't possibly work in terms of readiness to run you know you won't all have had the same kind of work day Uh, our hormones our stress our sleep so much will change so I think tailoring that program becomes probably one of the most important things to do so we don't get into that overtrained syndrome Uh, we were going to talk about something and I think Davey you mentioned it Mm. Um, how do we know even if we don't have subtle cues or, or pain responses in our bodies to know that we're approaching that Uh, danger zone uh, we can look at things like heart rate variability simple way of saying how well are those time intervals between my heartbeats how well is my nervous system adapting to that particular training run or to my week of of load and and a sure sign that things are starting to tax your body is that that hrv is going down and so i think if we we are having honest conversations with ourselves and with our patients um you know, then, then the signs are all there. I, I wanted to quickly ask, just so I, I've, been, I've been thinking about this now and maybe you can point me in the right direction or, or just shed some light on this because 
in the beginning I mentioned I hadn't had an injury. I haven't had an injury for quite some time now, right? It I I have been I have been blessed. That's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> I, the running gods have smiled upon me. I've had fatigue, but I haven't had any injuries. Nick, uh, you've had a few injuries, but but nothing too taxing. But do you think that the reason why I haven't had any injuries um, is just purely because of the amount of time that I've now been running, and my body is just accustomed to you know the program, or uh, have I been lucky? Or I mean, I haven't been doing. In all honesty, I'm sorry, guys. I haven't been doing, you know, gym work. I haven't been strengthening muscles. I, I've just been running. But is is that um, is that a possibility that you you just you, you know your muscle memory or your muscles just obviously you know become accustomed to what you're doing year after year that you are at a much lower risk of getting ITB or getting you know s- sort of you know the typical injuries that runners would get. Um, Nick, can I jump in? I Go think for it. <laughs> two things. David, you mentioned you had a bit of chronic fatigue. That was at the mm. beginning of the year. Mm. So you're talking about now having been injury-free for the last six months. How were you when you were tired? Um, Still injury-free? Yes. Yeah, I think I think injury and fatigue are... I'm classifying injury and fatigue as two different things. Fatigue is something that I still, you know, experience very frequently. Mm. But I'm talking about an actual injury that's going to put me out for a month. Like I haven't experienced that. I can't tell you the last time I experienced something, something like that. And I think you've you've built margin. You've got capacity to 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 go for a run. You you probably are your chassis has adapted. So there's been. If we speak structurally, you've got tissue adaptation over now consecutive years, up to four years. So your body is running hard; it's rode hard. Uh, you you probably have um, also, as as we get more comfortable in our own run pace, our own run style, we actually run more effortlessly. So mm. you probably are running more uh, almost automatically, the way your body was designed to run. Yeah. So you lessen your head and your body. You're letting your body run the way it's supposed to run. We we overthink things when we new runners, and 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 that can be putting un, undue stress mm. on certain lever lengths, muscles. Mm. So you probably are in your your easy zone because now you are well rehearsed in that rhythm. Whether it's your stride length, your cadence, your whatever you're doing, you're doing it at your body's kind of optimal. Mm. Uh, you've reached your sort of. You've calibrated. Sure. I mean, listen, Equilibrium. touch wood. I mean, I, I do think, you know, comrades, as bad as it is for our bodies, uh, I, I think definitely training for a race like comrades really puts you through a lot of stress. And if you, you know, if you can come out that, you know, relatively unscathed, you are, you are, I, I believe, and this is purely with no science backing it, <laughs> just like a gut feel, you know, you are, um, you know, you, you you're allowing your body to get to get used to you know quite a quite a high output in terms of in terms of running distance. But I understand how how different it is for runners that are starting out. You know, you're going for your first twenty one k, your first thirty k, your your first marathon. You're doing things that your body's never experienced, and then the risk is obviously quite high to experience injuries because your body's just never done it before. David, the other big part of adaptation is that we think it's just in our tendon ligament uh, chassis where we've had uh, some kind of resilience or a a robust tissue, you know, develop. Um, I think what's happened is your brain has adjusted. So we, more and more, if you look at the science, we realize that a lot happens in our brain. 
pain is an experience that we think is in our bodies, but it's actually a process that's being manufactured in our brains. So if we try to test you and say, well, the pain that you responded to in your first year of running, which was a, a red light for you, the same stimulus or the same alert sign, you probably don't even feel. So, so you are way less vigilant around pain in your body. It, didn't, it had a, a different threat value then. So you've developed um, a, a different appreciation for what's serious and what's not. Mm. So you, you, I would say you've had, um, there's been brain and body. But, and I do think that a big element of it, and I, I see this often in my practice, is faster runners, runners that have been running for longer and just above average athletes when it comes to running, they are less prone to getting type of chronic overuse injuries just because their running form and technique is it's just efficient. so much better. You know, you look at someone that running that's running five hours over a marathon a, they're spending five hours covering 42 kilometers instead of you doing it over three hours. And and B, their chassis just is not well built and developed to be able to run those distances. So they, they're far more likely to pick up injuries. And over and above that, you went through a big change this year uh, where you, you changed jobs. So I also believe that there's an element of stress linked to that where you're far less stressed than you've ever been in your life. Uh, so it's super interesting, yeah, that you say that. I mean, could stress? I mean, how how would you relate stress? You know, in the workplace, how would that relate to an overuse injury? So our bodies secrete certain chemicals or neurochemicals when we are taxed, and that can be work stress, emotional stress. So if you just take any system and you apply stress to that system, you get a change in your nervous system. So we vacillate between parasympathetic and sympathetic, which are fight and flight and rest-repose modes. And when you put a system under load, and that could be what you describe as now a, a less stressed work environment, it means you've had less of those damaging neurochemicals which would normally circulate. Those aren't there anymore. That, so is, that is fascinating. That, so that is, yeah. Okay. So that's probably a big part. And, you know, stress comes in many different ways. Yeah. As we say, like running is on, is, is stress, but mm. it's a physical form it's of stress. It's stress rather than distress. Because yeah. you only associate, you know, an injury with what you are physically doing. You, you never really associate it to, you know, your mental well-being or, or what you experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Emotional well-being. Emotional well-being and all of that. I, I, I honestly would say if somebody was like, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm stressed, and that's why I got an injury. I told him that's rubbish. <laughs> no, in fact, it's, it's more our, our physiology is, is fascinating. Uh, there's a research in Australia. He writes quite a lot of literature on pain, and Lorimer describes an event where simply the idea of a previous injury and, and just the mental work around rethinking or reliving that injury in his head brings about something of a flare response in the damaged limb. It's PTSD. So, so we can reenact the physiology that we associate with an injury or we reenact a stress system by being uh, exposed to, even if the threat is just an implicit one, it's not even a real threat. We, we, we stay in that stress mode and then our, our chemical composition during a stressful event is not conducive to training, it's not conducive to sleep. And so the whole system deregulates under that stress mm -hmm. soup. So that's why I think that 
just bringing it back to where Julie started in terms of the first thing she would do with a patient sitting in front of her is managing the actual mental condition happening in between their ears because that's truly where all of it starts. Now, I want to build it up further because we, I feel like we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole with that, which was extremely interesting and I think important to the conversation. But now, if this patient, uh, say, is going through the rehabilitation and now they're starting to feel a little bit better and they've been able to, to manage their training load, they've perhaps spoken to their coach, they've decreased their training load, I often say it's better to go into a race under-trained and over-trained and, and injured. Um, that's often what I'll try and, and, and tell someone that, say, uh, is training towards a marathon race and now they've clearly not done enough training. There obviously is a point in time where you say, okay, well, pull the plug, you train towards the next one. Or I think it's still safe for you to achieve it and still just go out and enjoy the experience. But when it comes to rehabilitation and when it comes to certain conditions, I want to speak to specific conditions so that our listeners can have a bit of an understanding as to, okay, they've picked this type of condition up. Uh, this is what they can sort of expect. This is what they might feel. This is how long it might take them to get better. And this is going to derail your training completely or it's something that you can manage while still being able to get to your goals. And to start it off, I want to start with a nice and easy one because Davey mentioned it, RTB. And uh, RTB is a very, very interesting condition that I particularly don't like very much. Uh, it, it's quite tricky to rehabilitate. It's not the easiest. What is your thought, Jules? So ITB happens in different runners for different reasons. So the pain feels the same, but the, the, the strategy to fix really is based on where, where it started. So you can take a runner who's poorly profiled in the shoes they're wearing. They can be that runner who has some kind of imbalance in terms of their strike. So their feet might be the start of that chain of events. So if you can always imagine an athlete needs to be unpacked in terms of links in a chain. So do you want to start proximal, which is at the top? And the average ITB sufferer probably nine, nine times out of ten has no glute med activation when they need it. So there is always going to be pain, not necessarily in the area where there is the injury, but pain moves um, relative to where the give would be. So if my weakness in glute med, which is that stabilizer either side of our hips, if that's lacking, something else must do the work of that lateral stabilizer. So our bodies are clever. They will use the next line of defense and they'll tighten up the band that runs down the outside of our thighs and bingo, you've got an ITB band which is always active or tonic and, and so the, the friction syndrome ensues. Equally, that runner who tends to be supinating or striking on its on its outside out on the outside of the foot is going to target a more lateral usage of all the muscles down that lateral or up that lateral highway. So I think we need to take a runner and and decide where 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 did this start. And I think all runners who are embarking on something where they're now upping their distance and they're now going to train for something specific. They're not just training for for fitness or for well-being. There's a 21 in, in mind or there's a marathon in mind. Are they, are they using the right equipment? So change what you can extrinsically. What do the shoes look like? Those are the easy things to do. Are they running on lousy camber? 
Canva can give us a, an acute onset of an ITB. You can run one beautiful beach run and wake up with ITB. So is it chronic or is it just because that particular training load was imbalanced? So again, ITB is, is not, not necessarily a simple. Uh, so you, you want to make sure that that athlete has had their, their feet looked at in trying to diagnose why did this start in the first place. Is it my running surface? Is it the road I've picked, the route I do every single Wednesday? Uh, or does it start higher up? And have I got a, and not so much I've got a, a bad ITB, where is your muscle imbalance? If you imagine a puppet... A puppet has strings, and sometimes we need to pull a string and slacken another one because we tend to be, none of us are entirely symmetrical. That's true. You must see that in practice, Nick. Mm. So we have small uh, discrepancies between left and right or our, our front system, our back system. So we try in a therapy role to get as much balance restored to that athlete. And if you give that, that ITB sufficient time to rest, if you support the tissues that are now inflamed and sore, and that's with your techniques of needling and soft tissue work and tape, but then you've changed the strategy to put in place that primary stabilizer, the glute mead, then you've also given yourself a prevention strategy. So it's threefold. Mm. And, uh, and I think a key element of what you uh, of what we can define in these injuries as well is is it runnable or is it uh, something that you should uh, try and and rest off of? You've got to rest an ITB. Yeah. I even know that. I was just yeah. going to say don't don't yeah. bother. Cool. <laughs> happy with that. Any more questions about <laughs> RTB, Davy? Nope. You happy? A, eh? Next one. Word, yeah. Tendinopathy. Okay. Tendinopathy is an interesting one because what tendinopathy doesn't apply just to one place, Davey. Tendinopathy. Oh man, I just wanted to pronounce the word. I you got it right. You got it right. So, what are some common tendon? Uh, what is tendinopathy? Okay, please, start with can that, you start Jules. there? Okay, you know what your Achilles tendon is, Davey. Of course. Okay, and if someone squeezes that, then it's exquisitely sore. Okay, that's so a trick question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So there's there's a really yeah easy example of what a tendon is, mm -hmm. and we talk about. Tendons can, can really be unhappy in two different states. In the acute uh, unhappy tendon state, it's newly inflamed and it's just the surface of that tendon which is inflamed. And it's usually because there's um, new load and it's it's in that sort of acute uh, injury phase. So, sorry, is tendinopathy sore tendons? Yes, but tendinopathy implies that you've now had that injury for a long time. So a tendonitis is different to a tendinosis. So tendinosis is tendinopathy where the actual integrity of the tendon is different. So now you've had tissue change. It's not just the sheath surrounding the tendon, but the actual body or the belly of the tendon is now scarred and thickened. And that Achilles that we said, you know where it is, that'll be, you can see it's it's a different, it takes on a different form. It's, it's fatter, it will be less elastic, and that implies tendinopathy, so it has a chronic state. So the, the, the newly sore tendon is just an inflamed tendinitis, whereas something which is established, we use three months as a guideline for chronicity, then you have tendinopathic change, and that implies that the tissue is now degraded. There is a change in the, in the actual tissue integrity. It cannot sustain load, so it won't give you your normal contractile strength, and then again, back to our discussion around eccentric loading. Mm. You're going to have to be patient with an Achilles tendinopathy. It's going to take 
up to 12 weeks for that to settle. And I think to, to speak about the tendons in general, I think the common ones that I personally see are your patella tendon and your upper hamstring tendon. Where's the patella tendon? O- over the front of your knee, just underneath your so kneecap. So your kneecap tendon, yeah? Your kneecap tendon and then underneath your bum fold. Underneath your, your bum tendon. Your, your bum tendon. <laughs> Nick, let's also talk about that medial shin pain because yes. there lives uh, just two or three really grumpy yes. tendon states. Yeah, true. So medial shin pain plagues most of our, our novice runners because usually there's, there's feet involved and suddenly you, you, you've gone from wearing flip-flops because we live here on the coast, and now <laughs> you've got um, interesting load down the, we would refer to this as shin splints, uh, in layman's terms. That's what everyone says. Okay, so your shin splints or medial shin pain, medial being just the inside, shins get sore and usually somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and you're mentioning that because people think, oh, well, I've got shin splints, it's my shin bone. There's a problem with my shin bone where you mention it in as part of the tendon because behind that shin bone, there's a very important muscle that, that goes through there. Maybe you can give us tendon, a bit. A tendon. There's a, there's a muscle with a tendon. There, there, there's more than one muscle. But if we just keep it simple for, for an illustration of, of where the pain is, if you run your finger down the length of your shin and you're on the inside versus the outside, you, you don't feel much um, muscle contour because it's pretty bony down that lever length. So attached to that shin is a muscle which really governs how how well your, your foot maintains the arch. So we need our inside shin muscles to give us foot form. And so when you pound the tar for 10Ks, you fatigue that muscle. And it's certainly not in the same walk action. You've now landed on your toes versus on your heels. So we get repetitive strain of a tendon running down the inside and that becomes very sore because it, it it has a different attachment to that bone. So it feels like bone pain. And it's not a big fleshy glute that you can put your elbow into and massage away. It's exquisitely sore because it's it's along the length of a, a bone. Have you ever had um, shin splints? Um, I, I have. I do. It's something that I feel from time to time, but it, I manage it. I learn what what. What I've done to to cause issues. Shin splints seems to be selective. When I say selective, it's like I mean, you either have it or you don't. I've never had it, and and I've never. I've always heard of this mythical, you know. No, it's not a myth. It's 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 alive and well, and it affects our our runners who probably have interesting feet. So Mm -hmm. if you have some kind of biomechanical disadvantage, or there's not. Um, a correct chew on a foot usually because if we think about our shin muscle let's keep it simple it's going to govern how we decelerate or land the guy running behind you who slaps the tar his decelerators aren't working okay so the 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 injury comes about when the ability to land and tolerate the impact as we get that ground reaction force is going to be a function of that muscle So if it's a new action or it's the wrong shoe and you don't have adequate support of the arch, that muscle works too hard. Just out of curiosity, sorry, is shin splints a a lesser common injury compared compared to mainstream ITB? I would say it's pretty common. Pretty common, common, eh? Pretty common. I'd say it's probably as common. And everything that we're mentioning right now, I'd say you're seeing them interchangeably and oftentimes happening simultaneously with some poor people and i wanted sure. to just to go back to the the, the question that i finished we finished off on the rtb with um runnable 
or non-runnable tendon issues and it's a tricky one because on some i feel it's 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 perfectly fine you're just moderating your training load and if it's not affecting you when you're running i generally find that it's okay to be able to keep on training moderately obviously i think speed work is something that really flares up tendons especially achilles and hamstring tendons what are your thoughts I think that hamstring tendinopathy is maybe one we should look at because that's a very different and that has a, a slightly harder to manage, um, I think, course. But certainly that medial shin pain is, is quite, it's quite a sharp pain. Mm. So each time that runner lands, it's a very, uh, it's an abrupt, it's a, it's a, it's a pain that, that is difficult to push through. So I would not encourage that one to be one that you you just, you know. The, the problem I with, agree. and I, I want to be clear here, shin splints, if you look at it as, as a big blanket term, um, underneath medial shin pain, shin splints is, is often, you can have an anterior syndrome and a posterior compartment syndrome, and they both are erroneously called shin splints. It can also be a stress fracture, mm. and that becomes a very different to manage bony lesion. So one wants to be clear Again, if you don't see healing time and healing change within a normal three-month period, then you're starting to be curious around what else could it be. And, and we do see stress fractures in that same region of the tibia. Mm. So one wants to differentiate because those are, you know, yeah, the For two sure. can mimic one each other. Each uh, other. Uh, and I think with regards to the, the upper hamstring tendon, there's, there's a whole podcast that, that can be done on just that particular case because that is a very very tricky one to deal with and to heal from long term as well um but yeah generally speaking with with these issues um if you're not 100 percent certain rest is definitely the way to go it's not they're not things that they're going to get better uh with the continuous running that you've been putting them through with the correct type of training you you can definitely get on top of them um, to close off, the last one that I want to just mention, and, and probably the easier one out of all of them to manage, is just general muscle strains. Uh, so say if someone's picked up a slight hamstring tweak uh, whilst trying to do a speed workout or a calf tweak. Calves, not so much easy, but generally those, those deal well with rest over a short period of time. They do. We grade muscle injuries, grade one, grade two, grade three. Grade three would be your more severe and that implies that you've had rupturing of some of the filaments. That muscle is is torn. Uh, there would be a degree of bleeding within the belly of the muscle, and and a grade three tear. You you're, you're going to have to rest that athlete. That's that's there's yeah. no doubt. Grade two looks a little uh, different to that. You don't have the same tissue trauma, and then a grade one is is almost I want to say negligible because that's going to with again the eccentric loading you haven't had a huge bleed or there's no big hematoma sitting there so you restore length to that muscle quite readily and your grade grade one strains are are good to go you mm. know within a two-week three-week period uh, grade twos will take longer up to six weeks and then you definitely out as a grade three muscle tear yeah. You know, there, there you're working hard to get that muscle back to some form of integrity. And that's a prolonged rehabilitation protocol to be able to even get back to it. So, But generally speaking, you know, if you're a long-distance runner, unlikely to get a grade 3 muscle strain unless there you There has to be trauma. So there has to be a mechanism yeah. of strain rather than just those silent, repetitive yeah. microloads. Yeah, and that's why I mean, today we spoke a lot just about the, the consistent microloading, which is what most runners struggle from. It goes without saying, based on the conversation that we've had, like we what we started with, you know, 
injuries are part of the running journey. The sooner you can come to terms with that, the quicker you'll be able to get on top of them and the quicker they'll become a part of it. And at the same time is if you manage your your goals correctly and are running for the correct reasons rather than just trying to get to a specific distance goal, uh, then you know, you're a lot more moldable in the way that your body responds to different training and you're not as hard up about hitting 100 kilometers every week or trying to to be able to keep up with your running buddies uh obviously we're all in it for a different reason and i know davy's looking at me now like well you don't know what you're talking about i want to hit 100ks every week but uh yeah i think you gotta you gotta know he's trying to to bait me over here (laughs) he wants me to he wants me to react but i've learned a wise runner wise (laughs) old head over here I want to say if we can develop as much mental agility as we can in terms of stretching ability. So if we can be agile in our heads and, our, and our, how we're framing things um, and, and be as routine about our stretching when it comes to our Achilles, <laughs> um, then, then we're going to, when we do hit those speed bumps, we're going to navigate them better. Um, there was a runner who was interviewed and he said, you know, go for brunch instead of going to the church of the long run. You know, there's, there's quite nice things that just ordinary humans do on a Sunday rather than wake up at four because and get on the road to. in the dark. Yeah, because you have to. So avoid going down that self-diagnosis rabbit hole and speak to the right people who can just steer you. Because it is a journey and it is your journey. So you've got to apply the rest tools and be proactive about intentional rest embrace the rest part because it's part of the recovery cycle so we don't just write running programs we should reframe our our titles we should call them the rest run program or this is your rest run training block and then rest becomes something that you have to do rather than that you're forced to do and if we can give it different priority i think we will recharge our little systems or replenish and then we've already built in a buffer we just become immediately less injury prone by doing that brilliant Thank you, Jules. That was awesome. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Jules. Thank you, Davey. Thank you, Nick. And we'll we'll, we'll chat to you soon. Um, I'm sure we'll have some more questions. And and maybe Nick will have some more injuries. And maybe Davey will have some uh, some medial stress I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get an injury to come here as uh, a case study. You can't speak right now. You got nothing to say. Thank you, Jules. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening to another episode of Making a Runner. We hope you enjoyed it and found value in the show. Don't forget to rate and leave a review on your favorite streaming platform. And remember to share with your running buddies. Follow our journey on our socials and feel free to engage with us on all things running. We wish you a pleasant run wherever the road or trail may take you. Bye for now.